that is the story of this country, the story that has brought me to this stage tonight, the story of generations of people who felt the lash of bondage, the shame of servitude, the sting of segregation, but who kept on striving and hoping and doing what needed to be done so that today I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. And Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was First Lady Michelle Obama speaking at the 2016 Democratic Convention. I'm Jason Franklin, it's Tuesday, May 25th, and moving from 2016 to today, here at One for Democracy, we're keeping our eye on five key issues. The continued fights around voter suppression, gerrymandering of state Supreme Courts, efforts to block the initiative process, new efforts to undermine unionization, and our continued reckoning on racial justice and police brutality on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. There are many ways that democracy dies when a society or its political leaders are willing to sacrifice processes in order to win. We're keeping our eyes on voter suppression efforts while also looking at two other issues that should get more attention, fairness of judicial elections and efforts to block citizen democracy through the ballot initiative. On the voter suppression front, while spring legislative sessions are wrapping up across the country as legislators prepare for their summer recesses, some state lawmakers are still trying to find more time to suppress the vote. In Missouri, where the legislative session ended on Friday, Republican lawmakers are calling for a special session on election reform after they failed to pass a bill to make it illegal to send absentee ballot request forms to voters unless they explicitly ask for one. Other states are sliding in voter suppression efforts at the last minutes. In the final hours of their legislative session on Wednesday, for example, Iowa Senate Republicans passed yet another voter suppression bill, a last-minute amendment that adds restrictions on who can return absentee ballots. At the federal level, while Democratic leaders are still pushing to pass the For the People Act in the Senate, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska penned a joint letter to congressional leaders outlining their support for the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act and asking their colleagues in both parties to join them. Manchin also has suggested that the Voting Rights Act could be strengthened to require pre-authorization of voting changes in all 50 states rather than just the current handful of states covered by the VRA. However, neither Murkowski nor Manchin have yet to offer their support for the For the People Act itself. Turning from voter suppression to state courts, we're also seeing gerrymandering debates emerge. Um, in Illinois, for example, there's four seats on the closely divided state Supreme Court up for election next year, and the third judicial district could determine which party winds up with the majority. However, the Illinois Supreme Court elections could shift if action is taken on the actual very problematic map of the court itself. Illinois is just one of four states that elects its state Supreme Court by district rather than statewide, using a map that actually hasn't been redrawn in over 50 years. That's led to extreme malapportionment, where the fourth and fifth districts down in conservative rural southern Illinois are home to fewer people combined than the second district, which is based in democratic-leaning Chicago suburbs. Reports are bubbling that a new judicial map is in the work, which would both shore up Democratic majorities on the Supreme Court 
and correct this serious imbalance that boosts one part of the state over the other for no real reason. Conversely, efforts are underway to fight an effort in Pennsylvania that would divide the Supreme Court from electing statewide justices into regional districts. Voting rights advocates in Pennsylvania are noting that this would unfairly gerrymander the judiciary and overemphasize the votes of white, suburban, and rural voters. Who gets elected to our state Supreme Courts has an incredible impact on the fairness of our legal system and doesn't get enough attention as we think about how our democracy functions. Another aspect of democracy under attack is the ballot process, the process of citizens putting policy up for vote through an initiative or a petition. The New York Times has reported that Republicans in 32 states have introduced 144 bills to restrict the ballot initiative process, and nine governors have already signed 19 of those bills into law. For example, in South Dakota, Republicans passed a law requiring ballot initiative petitions to be printed in size 14 font at a minimum, and they must fit on one piece of paper. As a result, this will force people gathering petitions to carry around huge pieces of paper, a single piece of paper that could unfold to the size of a beach towel because it all has to print on one piece of paper. Also in uh, last week, the Mississippi Conservative Supreme Court struck down the entire state ballot initiative process on a bizarre technicality. Under provisions of the state constitution adopted in the 90s, ballot organizers must gather signatures from each of the state's five congressional districts in order to qualify for the ballot. However, because the state lost a congressional district due to reapportionment back in 2000, the court ruled that it's impossible to comply with the constitutional requirement because the state only sends four members to Congress. As a result, they invalidated a 2020 initiative that legalized medical marijuana and killed new ballot efforts that have just been launched to adopt early voting and to expand Medicaid. The court's ruling in favor of conservative activists also opens the door for every initiative approved by voters in the last two decades to be invalidated. So attacks on this process of how can citizens put forward their own pieces of legislation. Also attacks on unionization bubbling up this week. America's two major legacy automakers, General Motors and Ford, are both trying to align with Biden's push to go electric, but avoid his push to create union jobs. What they're doing is launching new factories as joint ventures with battery makers. And because they've had nationwide contracts with the UAW since the 40s, all their plants are unionized. But they're saying these new plants are joint ventures and therefore not subject to their union contracts. And I said workers will have to go through elections to decide on unionization and management could oppose them just like Amazon did at its Bessemer warehouse. Up in New York, Gig worker companies led by Lyft and Uber are supposedly close to a deal to continue classifying their workers as independent contractors rather than employees and prohibiting any newly unionized workers from picketing, strikes, slowdowns, or boycotts. This would be a massive shift in a state that's long been seen as a labor stronghold. And while the new law would allow gig workers to vote to form unions, it would maintain their status as independent contractors and preempt local laws like those in New York City that set minimum wages or other fair work requirements. Labor advocates fear that both these auto industry and gig worker efforts are the types of things that will undermine the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, a federal bill that passed the U.S. House of Representatives and is pending in the Senate that would recognize a more expansive set of rights for gig workers and strengthen labor organizing. 
Finally, today we mark the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. President Biden will meet with members of his family at the White House, but the fight for police accountability and racial justice is ongoing. Since his murder, 17 states have banned or restricted police use of chokeholds, and more than 20 cities from LA to Seattle to Austin have cut their police budgets in some way, some reinvesting those funds into services like mental health and housing. However, efforts to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which passed the House in early March, remains bogged down in the Senate. That legislation would ban chokeholds, end qualified immunity for law enforcement, ban no-knock war no warrants in federal drug cases, mandate data collection on police encounters, create a nationwide police misconduct registry to hold problematic officers accountable, prohibit racial and religious profiling, redirect funding to community-based policing, and more. But it is not moving right now. In Floyd's home, efforts at major policing changes in Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota have been blocked and watered down. Last summer's pledge by a veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis City Council to dismantle their police department was thwarted by a citizen's commission, leaving that matter to be voted on in November instead, which both police opposition and a recent surge in violent crime in Minneapolis are going to make more challenging. These are conversations and struggles that continue. How do we make right the questions of racial justice? How do we hold police accountable while also ensuring public safety? So thanks for joining us this week to hear a quick review of some of the key issues we're facing in our democracy. Looking at the continued fights over whether we'll respect and sustain the processes of a functioning democracy from the right to vote, to fairly electing justices, or providing a path for citizen-led policymaking, to some of the fights on key policy issues affecting our lives from labor protections to policing and racial justice. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, May 25th, and thanks for joining 10 Minutes on Democracy.